you'll please take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 25. Jim has already read the passage uh, to you for this morning, and uh, we're going to be reading that as our scripture reading because most of the passages that we're going to have through the life of Jacob are going to be chapters long. And so we are trying to keep it a little bit condensed and then hit the highlights as we go through the passage. And so this morning we're looking at Genesis 25, verses 29 through 34 this morning. And again, this is a messed up passage. If you look at it, it doesn't seem like anything in this passage is right or good. And we all understand sibling squabbling. If you've had a sibling, and again, not ones that are 11 or 12 years apart, that doesn't count. But if you've had siblings that are around your age, you know that sometimes you think that the squabbling is just purely playful. At least you hope. Sometimes you think that it's just competitiveness. But we live in a day and age where siblings sue one another. Siblings give each other silent treatment for years. And sub-siblings have even killed their siblings. We see throughout history, we started with Cain and Abel. As I was looking it up, we, I saw things about the Andrew sisters. They didn't like each other. The royal families have issues. Sports figures have issues. Your family has issues. I remember very clearly, and many of you that heard this story, but I'm going to tell it to the new people because I think it's a great story because it hurt my brother and not me. But it was one of those times where, again, I have two older brothers and then I have a younger sister, so I couldn't beat up on my younger sister. So I became the whipping post for my two older brothers in many scenarios. Now, the only thing is, is uh, younger brothers grow up. So I was living for today uh, when I can get even with my brothers. And one of those days happened to come because I knew my brother was chasing me and my cousin and we were only six months apart. And he grew up to be a, a Navy SEAL and I grew up to this size and stuff like that. And I think it's because we just were so despised by my older brothers that we wanted to get even so badly. So one day I knew my brother was chasing me and I let down the clothesline. I untied it and let it down. Um, in the backyard. And again, it was during those days where the clotheslines went the length of the backyard. And so I knew I could run underneath the clothesline and it caught my brother right in the throat. And it laid him out. And I have never been beat as bad by my father with a belt as that day, but I would do it again (laughs) to get back at my brother because I wanted to get even. I wanted to get out of his oppression. So here's sibling squabbling that's going on, but there's something more sinister that's going on in the background. So we're going to unpack this, and we're going to see how Jacob's desire uh, kind of is in competition with Esau's desire, and then what's the warning for us. So the first thing we need to ask in regards to this passage is, why did Jacob desire a birthright? So what is a birthright? Well, there's two dimensions to it. The first one is a physical dimension. So during this time, the oldest son would have received a double portion. So if you had 
two children, then the, the inheritance would have been split three ways. Two for the older son and one for the younger. So you would have received more money. You would have received more things just being the oldest. And remember, here Jacob is only literally seconds behind Esau. He comes out grabbing Esau's hill, heel out of the womb. So, so think about that. I mean, he comes out only a seconds later and he's going to receive one portion less than his older brother Esau. So there's a physical dimension to it, but there's also a spiritual dimension. So when you became the oldest son, you were the one who was supposed to become the leader of the family. Now, younger siblings, you always hated to hear these words from your parents to your older sibling brother. You are now the man of the house. Because you didn't want to live underneath their rule. You didn't want to have the older ruling the younger. But the reality is, was the person that was the oldest son was to become the spiritual head. Whether he wanted to or not, he was supposed to become the spiritual head of the family. Now, Jacob at least had a right desire. It was good for him to desire to have this privilege. To be the head of the house. Now, part of the question we have to ask, did Jacob know about the promise that was given to his mother? Did his mother tell him? Did his his father tell him? Was he aware that he was going to rule over top of his brother eventually? We're not given that answer, but part of us should say he probably was aware of the prophecy. And if he's aware of the prophecy, then I want you to grasp and understand that he therefore had no patience to wait for the Lord's timing. If he was aware, and he knew that someday he was going to rule over his brother, all he had to do was to wait upon the Lord in his timing, in his ways. But here's application for us. We, like Jacob, want the promises of God now. We don't want to wait. And so there is a lack of trust that many of us bring to the situation. We can't wait on God's timing, so we do it in our own timing. And so we make statements like this, it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission. I will just do it my way. I will do it in my timing. We also make things like, I can't trust God's ways, so it's better to do it on my own. And so here's what we do sometimes. Dear God, I want you to bless what I've already decided I'm going to do. I would venture to say, all of us have probably been there at some point. I've decided, now God bless it. Because I'm not going to wait for you. And so at this point, I really believe that Jacob goes in the wrong ways to achieve the right desire. And it's a warning for us. Be careful. Be patient. Await God. Now, we understood that Jacob is a grasping, he's conniving He's irritable on a good day. 
And so here he is uh, in the midst of having this conversation with his brother. And again, I think there is some deception here. Now, why do I say that? I can't read it into the scripture. So please understand, this is part of my study of this. But I do believe that there was a, a deception that was going on from Jacob to Esau. Now, there's a couple of ways that this can be interpreted. One way is that Jacob made Esau think that there was going to be meat and something of sustenance in the stew that he made because it was the color red. Because if you know lentils, we know that it's a lentil soup or stew. Lentils, even if they start off red, it becomes a brown mush. So there's twice in the passage where Esau calls it red. So what's going on? Now, maybe it was made red with a color that Jacob just put in there to make him think that it was a a different kind of stew than it really was. Or there is a Jewish tradition. And a Jewish tradition talks about this passage where it talks about, and it fits very well with the passage, where Esau was probably sick. He had the flu, and so he had this respiratory thing that was going on. He came in from the field, and he had already told his brother, and the brother had made a stew or a soup with sumac berries. And sumac berries during that time was supposed to be something that healed people of that sickness. And so, did Esau ask for Jacob to make this, in essence, this medicine for him? So when he came back in from the field to get that medicine, Jacob deceives him. And he says, before I give you medicine, before you're about to die, and he probably did think, maybe I really am going to die. Before I give that, sell me your birthright. So you have this deception that's going on, but even if, even if that isn't true, there was a thing that was going on where Jacob demands in the weakness of his brother. He was tired. He was hungry. He was emotional. And I say this to everybody who goes through a, a major trial in their life, whether it be a death of a loved one, um, having after hurricanes, anything like that. I said, please never make big decisions while you're emotional. You're not in your right mind. Don't make a mistake. Take time. Settle down. And yet the reality is at this moment, as Esau is at his weakest point, Esau demands an answer. Now he's, he's truly a seller, right? He's someone who's selling the product. Because you know if you let him get out of the room, you've lost the sale. So you've got to make the sale now. Tell me right now you're going to promise me. Tell me right now. You're not leaving this room until you tell me, until you promise. And I want you to, to, to grasp and understand at this moment, Esau in this passage is the nice one. Now, it's not in most of your translations, but if you go back to the Hebrew, he's the one who says, please. Please, may I have some food? It's Jacob who's the jerk. He's the one who's demanding, and he's demanding action right now. Sell me your birthright. So Jacob is 
going about the right thing, but he's doing it in the wrong way. Now, there's also Esau, who's also messed up. So Esau is coming in here, and he gives superficial words. And I want you to grasp and understand this, that that don't be careless with your words. Words matter. They have meaning. And every one of us, if you have a number of years on your life, remember people specifically who have said things to you that cut deep. That you today can come up with and tell me as your pastor and say, these were the words that were spoken to me by this person and they hurt me. Words matter. And here Esau takes words and he makes a statement saying, I'm about to die. What good is a birthright to me? Now he probably, and think about this, he probably didn't really mean what he said. We've all done that. I'm going to promise this to you. I'm so overwhelmed. How many of us have ever said, I'm so hungry I could eat a horse? Now, what if someone actually brought a horse in? I was just, I I didn't really mean it. That could have been Esau. I, I didn't mean what I said. And yet his words had meaning. And not only that, he makes a rash action. Because he swears an oath. And there's many examples throughout the scripture where people have made outrageous rash actions. The next person who comes out of my house, I'm going to kill. And remember, it was his own daughter. We've made rash actions in our own lives. I promise I'm going to take care of this. I promise I will never leave you or forsake you. I'll always take care of you financially or whatever. And it's come back to bite us. You promised. You promised. So here's Esau. He's now sworn an oath with his quick, careless words. And now he has, listen, forfeited his rights. He's given away his rights. And so what he's done is he has forfeited his privilege. Because, listen, Esau really did not value what really matters the most. He didn't value the blessings of God. He doesn't value the promises of the future. He doesn't value his spiritual advantage. You're going to be the head of the house. You're going to be the one to take over. You're going to get a double portion. You're the one who's going to direct how things are going to happen for the future. And he doesn't care. Esau doesn't care. doesn't care that he came from a Christian home. He doesn't care. He rejects all the expectations. He doesn't want it at the moment. And so what it means is he's despising his own birthright. And he does it for momentary pleasures. He wants the temporal over the eternal. He's ready to compromise over building a character. And we've seen it in our own lives. How many of us have chosen the temporal over the eternal? How many of us compromised to be liked by people who we don't even really count as friends, but we want to fit in? We don't want to be thought of as weird. 
We don't want to be the ones to bring up religion at the meal table or at the office or in school. We want to compromise. Because most of us, if we're honest, care more about the temporal than we do about the eternal. That's the warning from Esau. Be more about the eternal, be more about character than compromise. Because what happens is now Esau despises his birthright. He lives to regret his choice and its consequence. And so we need to take that wisdom and apply it to ourselves. Will we compromise on behalf of the eternal? Listen to what Donald Gray Barnhouse says this about us as we look at our lives. Men will read trash rather than the word of God and adhere to a system of priorities that leaves God out of their lives. Multitudes of men spend more time shaving than on their souls. And multitudes of women give more time to their makeup than to the life of the eternal spirit. That's true. If we sat down and thought about how much time do we spend on the eternal as compared to the temporal, I think we would be amazed at how much time we spend on ourselves. So we have Esau and Jacob, and I want it to be a place where we examine our own hearts because there's a warning for us. Now listen, it doesn't come from this passage. God actually takes this passage and applies it in Hebrews chapter 12. And if you want to take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 12, you're free to do so. If not, it's going to be up behind me. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears." The Bible is applying the warning to us because we miss the grace of God. That's the first part. There's a sense where we have unconfessed sin. So that's where Esau was. Now, again, was Esau sad that he didn't receive what he had? Yes. Does it mean that he confessed or repented of his sin probably not and there's a big difference because we can be sad for many things because when i used to cheat and i got caught yes even pastors have cheated in their lifetime why was why was i sad because i got caught if i hadn't got caught bonus for me Bad for the teacher. But am I repentant? Because when I became repentant, I went back and told the teacher that I had cheated knowing that it could cost me my grade. Big difference. So 
here Esau comes and he gives us this warning in the scripture from Hebrew that we can miss the grace of God with unconfessed sin, but it's also there can be a famine of God's word. Let's think about it. If we don't spend time in the word of God, what begins to fill our lives? Fill in the blank. Could be TV. Could be your Sudoku. Could be your video games, teenagers. It could be your job. It could be your family. I mean, it really could be good things that become priorities more than God himself. See, we have to remain in God's word. We have to be fed daily. And if you can't do it daily, then have a bigger dose on a day of the week. Again, I'm not looking for rote. I'm not looking for a box to check. I'm looking, are we growing in our relationship with the Heavenly Father? And not only is there the sense of unconfessed sin or a famine of God's word, but there's a missing of the fellowship of the church. We are the family of God. And the family of God, listen, the the Bible talks about how wide and deep the love of Christ is as we love one another in the church. This is how we figure out what love is. It's a reason why we are coming back together. And I understand there are still people who can't come. And for them it's wise. But there are some people who are becoming very comfortable in their own home, watching in their own time, sitting in their own seat. Those people need to come back. Because we need each other. This is how we understand how wide and deep and how great is the love of Christ. And when we give that up, for some reason, it seems that I'm right all the time. We need each other. And so we need to make sure that we're not missing the grace of God. And then the second thing is we need to make sure we don't have the root of bitterness to grow. And do you understand that seeds grow slowly? And so usually it's only time that begins to show within someone a root of bitterness. But here is the reality. It comes from assumptions, fibs, gossips. And so it begins to poison those around. And so when you have an opportunity and go, hey, I heard this about so-and-so. Do you want to hear? Uh, sure. Well, here's what I have against them. Do you now think that I'm right and he's wrong? Well, of course I do. Well, who are you going to go tell? See, we should be in a position where we're on alert. We should protect our ears and the reputations of those around us. Don't allow the root of bitterness to grow. And then the third thing in this passage is that Esau sells his, who he is for a cheap meal. It's not even a good meal. It's a cheap meal. It's lentils and bread. 
And so we find that his appetites or his lust, listen, make God unreal. And I want you to apply this. If you have a lust for something and it is so demanding, your focus becomes so singular that it doesn't matter any of the consequences. Why does adultery happen? Because someone gets so focused on that person or that situation that it doesn't matter about kids. It doesn't matter about consequences. It doesn't matter about anything. I'm going to fulfill what I want to fulfill. And so Esau gives his appetite that makes God unreal to him. And so he cheaps out over a meal. There's consequences. And we need to be mindful that as we go into every situation, there are consequences to our actions, whether temporal or eternal. There's consequences. So here's the warning that we get about this Jacob and Esau in Scripture. God tells us what we're supposed to get. But then he also tells us how we're to pursue the Savior. Hebrews, same passage. Hebrews, looking at verses 12 through 14. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So God gives us what we're supposed to be doing instead of what we're supposed to be in regards to Esau. And so he gives us, again, three things. The first thing he tells us is get tough. He tells you to strengthen yourselves. Now, again, be honest. Do you get spiritually run down? Yes. Every one of us gets spiritually run down. We get tired The Bible tells us even yous grow weak and weary. And we don't want to do it anymore. And we don't want to invite people over anymore. And we don't want to go to people's houses. And we don't want to be nice. And God tells us in some ways, man up. Woman up. Get over yourselves. Strengthen your hands and your knees. Now, does that mean we do it on our own? No. If you do it on your own, you're doomed for failure. Why do we do it? Because we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. So when we ask those kind of questions, do I need to invite someone over? We should be praying, God, who do you want to have come over? When does that need to happen? When do you need to to take your gift card and spend it on someone else? When do you need to give things that you have away to others in need? We should be caring and strengthening ourselves by looking at Jesus and saying, Jesus, what do you want to do? Because Jesus is very faithful. And Jesus gives us a strength and a love and a desire Where again, we're not doing it because we have to, but because we get to. It's a privilege. It's an honor that we get to be a part of each other's lives. The second thing he does, he says, make straight paths so that we might not find ourselves, um, putting ourselves out of ligaments. 
Now, now what does that mean? It means that we're supposed to make those who are able to make straight paths for the lame. We need to make it so that everyone else can walk smoothly on the road, which means that Christianity, we should help everyone finish the race. And I know that's against who we are as Americans because we're out for number one. We're out for uno. And so a lot of times we will, at the expense of others, we'll do things for ourselves. And God says it's just the opposite. The first thing we should do is make sure that everybody else can finish the race. Again, what are the times that you remember? And I, get, I know we have... People like Usain Bolt and all that kind of stuff. The fastest man and stuff like that. But the things that we remember in the Olympics are the people, remember, who are helping each other across the line when someone hurts themselves or falls down. That's what we remember. Because they get it. It's not just about winning. It's about finishing. Something that they have worked for, for years or lifetimes, these people. And someone else says, I know what that's like and I'm going to help you to finish the race. We have the ability as brothers and sisters to pray for one another and perform acts of mercy. Who are you praying for? Do you know the people in this room? Do you have them on your prayer list? Do you know what's going on in their lives? Are you keeping up with them? And as you pray for them, then encourage them. Send them a text. Send them a Facebook. Send them a Snapchat. Whatever you want to do. But let people know, I'm praying for you. One of the greatest things I get during the week is, hey, I just want you to know I'm praying for you. Just a quick thing. You know, and I do my stupid little thumbs up. Hey, great. Thank you. But it means a lot. Do that for one another. And then the last thing it says, it says strive for peace and holiness. It doesn't say let peace and holiness happen. There's a pursuing. Strive for peace. Because listen, conflict in the church brings what? Glory to Satan and it disgraces God. If you have something against someone in this building or in another church building or in the kingdom of God that you have not fixed, that is glorifying Satan and disgracing God. Because it's not about being right. It says go and pursue that relationship so that God might be honored. Listen, loving other people doesn't mean that everything is great and good all the time. Loving people is sacrificial. And so we have to pursue. And so there's a pursuing of peace with all men. Matthew 5, 8 and 9, coming from the Beatitudes. Listen, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And then blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. We're to pursue holiness with all people. Not just people we like. 
Not just people we're comfortable with. Pursue holiness. And then we'll be called the sons of God. So here's our application. Heed the warning. Don't miss the grace of God. Don't allow a root of bitterness to crawl up inside of you. And don't sell yourself out for cheap momentary pleasures. But pursue the Savior. Get tough. Make straight paths for others. And strive for peace and holiness. And listen to what happens with God and Jacob. The things that are so messed up about Jacob in our passage, God uses and creates them to be virtues for God's kingdom. Do you get that? He doesn't change your personality. He transforms you into the likeness of his son. So if you're stubborn as a non-Christian, you're still going to be a stubborn Christian. But God's going to use it in a way that will amaze you. If you're an introvert as a non-Christian, you're probably still going to be an introvert as a Christian. Unless you're Jim Dyke, which is a, he's an anomaly. But he's still going to use you with your personality and your character. And he's going to transform you with the virtues of doing his will. So heed the warnings. Seek to minister to those around you. Make straight paths. Pursue righteousness and holiness and peace. And then when we heed, then ask God to use you to change the world. And I can guarantee he will answer that prayer. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, it's hard to to hear these words. It's hard to preach these words. Because if we're honest, we're, we're too much like the old Jacob, not Israel. We're like Esau. Lord, we want instant We want easy Christianity. And yet, Father, you're about changing us to look more like our Savior. And he gave up everything. And I don't like that. So, Father, you need to change my heart. You need to change our hearts. Give us eyes to see like our Savior, those around us, that we would be willing to die to ourselves and live for them. That we would truly get tough. Lord, that we would strengthen ourselves where we become anxious and overwhelmed by the the world and the news. And the coronavirus. And the protests. Lord, it's so easy to, to cry out to you and say, where are you? And you're here. You've never left. You've never not been in control. So, Father, let us trust you and rest. 
and knowing that you are perfect and you are good. And Lord, let us be about encouraging one another. Let us finish the race together. And let us pursue righteousness and holiness and peace with everyone around us. And Father, maybe just then people will start to notice that there's something different about your church, your son. And that they would ask, what's different about your protest? And we might be able to say that it's the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who didn't carry a sign, but who went to the cross and gave his life for us so that we might gain gain his righteousness and perfection and be made anew and right with you, our Heavenly Father. So, Father, I beg you that you would transform us into the likeness of your Son and then use us to build your kingdom here on this earth that you might receive all glory and honor. For we pray this in Christ's name. And all God's people said, Amen.